0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Code word I did remember.
2: Onions. That word had been allowed in our correspondence to represent discreetly our passion. Love became
1: onions, even the act itself. Hello there, it's N. Quentin Wolf here. I'm just getting ready to record this week's Londonist Out Loud. And uh, to aid me as I do so, I'm listening to Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. It's an unabridged audiobook. Uh, you'll never guess where I get it from. Yes, audible.co.uk. They're our sponsors and they're uh, up for giving you a free audiobook of exactly this sort from their catalogue of over 60,000 digital audiobooks. All you've got to do is to claim yours, which you can download and keep forever, and you can burn to CD or keep as an MP3, whatever you prefer, is sign up for their 30-day free trial with the Audible service. Stay on with the Audible service, of course, and you'll get audiobooks on a regular basis, but you don't have to, and you'll still be able to keep your book whatever you do. To claim your free audiobook, just go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through.
2: But there still remains jealousy of my rival—a melodramatic word, painfully inadequate to express
1: the unbearable complacency, confidence. London Michaelmas (laughs) term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. Radical transformation.
2: Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's
1: going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you
2: realise gore happened all across London. Every open square really would at have a gallery. Place called the Kittle Hussy you saw your so. Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? A <laughs> <laughs> man who's tired of London, he's tired of London. So life. what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's
1: it's very important history.
2: A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a
1: piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet, what, amassing yourself in the sight. sounds for the, so on, the Jewish so on, community, so
0: who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing.
1: When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris is announced it is fatigue. Yes, the is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you yeah, know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about.
2: London is a modern Babylon. That's very true.
1: Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, it's Friday, March the 8th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet me at Londonist Sound, or check out images of our guests via Londonist Out Loud on Instagram. Well, we're all about the railways Today, the railways nationally and the railways in London, I'll be discussing with Gareth Edwards from London Reconnections, one of the darkest chapters in London and indeed the country's rail history. Before that, though, you may remember in last week's episode, we poked with a stick the question of what happens to all the newspapers that get left behind on particularly on the underground i think but also on uh, overground and other forms of transport we've been in touch with transport for london about this and they have sent us uh, i think a fairly standard reply outlining uh, what they do as far as recycling goes Uh, thanks to matt keen who also followed up on this and produced a similar result this looks like the, the cookie cutter response that comes out and whilst it's great that tfl is addressing recycling i have to say the response falls perhaps a little short What might be hoped for. As far as the London Underground, they say most of London Underground station and depot waste goes to recycling centres which can separate these materials and send them for recycling. So that's the station and the depots. 70% of those station and depot waste products are recycled. However, We do recycle approximately half of all waste left on the underground by focusing on recycling when we clean our trains. And they go on to say, at these stations, newspapers are collected separately from general waste. The cleaners use clear plastic bags, and the material is sent for recycling. 50%? Okay, maybe that's not as good as it could be, I would have thought. Particularly when you consider, I mean, just the next time you're in a tube carriage, have a little look up and down and see what that waste is Mostly made up of. Well, from my experience, uh, most of that stuff is recyclable. So I'm quite surprised at that response. I also must say that the idea of cleaners going around with clear plastic bags that separately collect the newspapers, which is kind of the image that I realized I wasn't seeing when this whole question started, they're telling us that that's what happens. But I must say that doesn't marry up with my personal experience. Well, I don't know. Perhaps what I was seeing was unrepresentative. Where other forms of transport are concerned, though, it's much hazier. And, by and large, TFL is pointing at other organisations and saying, well, you know, this is down to these guys. Um, They do so with local authorities. They mention the local authorities are responsible for collecting rubbish outside stations. They talk about um, how recycling schemes have been trialled and have fallen flat on their face because people have been putting food waste in there. Some of the phrases here simply seem to relate to assurances given to TFL by... uh, Other organisations, for example, on the DLR, it says recycling bins are not permitted on the DLR due to security restrictions. However, newspapers left on trains will be recycled by the cleaners at the depot. Well, okay, if they say so. This, for me, though, in the section under buses, there's scanned information under the buses section here, and it suggests that the majority of newspapers are taken with passengers or left on buses, which tells us very little about the recycling. It goes on to say, London buses have been given assurance from bus operators that recycling at depots and garages is taking place. (laughs) Well, I mean, you could drive a bus through that, couldn't you? where our specific question about the newspapers left on the tube is concerned though they say london underground has worked with london's free newspaper distributors to have a newspaper campaign that promoted help us to recycle by taking your newspaper with you is that really recycling or is that just not leaving the stuff there in the first place we didn't see says tfl any significant drop in the amount of waste collected (laughs) but the amount of waste collected did level off having increased steadily in previous years however this may be related to certain free newspapers being withdrawn at the same time so an ingenious uh, approach to recycling there from london underground including uh, getting people not to leave the newspapers on the tube in the first place and uh, essentially just waiting for the newspapers to close down
2: Three trains were involved in the appalling railway disaster at Harrow and Wheelstone. Each was full of people, and the station was also crowded, with the result that British railways have suffered their worst accident.
1: Well, normally on this podcast, we make every effort to avoid recording in uh, certain places. Snow is bad. makes a lot of noise when a car goes through snow. Uh, and train lines are particularly bad, but we're, we're purposely next to the train line today and uh, that's because we will be talking about a major moment in the uh, rail history of both the capital and the country here with me is gareth edwards he's a transport journalist and historian and he is the editor of london reconnections hello 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 what is london reconnections first of all
2: Uh, london reconnections is a site where we we kind of cover the news about london transport in depth kind of the the greater depth than you get in say the the kind of the papers um and also the history the history of london and its railways and buses and everything else
1: what about the uh, the train side of things it sounds as though you you might have a specialism there over other modes of transport i'm not sure Uh, london rail history is yeah is is for my
2: sins something i've studied quite quite a lot of um and so Certainly, kind of in and around kind of the major events, so, so things like kind of a, the, well, the, the disaster that we're here to discuss today and various other things.
1: Yes, uh, I should probably preface this by saying that if younger ears are listening, uh, then they, or even more sensitive ears, there may be things to hear here which people find disturbing uh, because we are going to be talking, as you say, about a major disaster that happened. And we're going back for this to 1952 Harrow and Wealdstone. And it is the Harrow and Wheelstone rail crash that we're talking about. Perhaps we could set a bit of a scene and, and maybe draw in for people who are less familiar with how the, the train system was working. Then, I mean, the era we're in is kind of the
2: classic steam era, the kind of you, you, you remember from kind of the films of steam trains everywhere, and and really the kind of peak of that. I mean, we're just into the post-war period. Steam is still a major force in in, in UK rail, and it's and it's pretty much been perfected. So it is really that kind of that cinematic era of of, of large kind of engines powering through the countryside and the
1: cities oh yes think brief encounter and those uh, scary moments where the train comes through with his whistle on yeah exactly exactly that kind of thing okay so we're in uh, harran wheelstone it's uh, what time of year in 1956?
2: we're we're into october
1: so we're into the kind of the, uh,
2: the kind of the the autumn uh, period and that really actually plays part of the the kind of disaster we're into the the cold mornings frosty breath fog on on, on the railway that kind of thing to set the scene um it's, it's a foggy morning. Um, Harren-Wheelston is a, is a kind of, if for those not familiar with the station, it's a, a relatively small station just kind of to the north of London. Um, if you imagine any station that you're familiar with, you've got tracks going in different directions, um, and it services both kind of express trains that are kind of running down to Euston from, from Scotland and also local passenger services that take people to work in the morning. And on this particular October morning, What happens is that you have a passenger train coming in from Tring. It's heading into Euston and it's stopping at all the stations on the way in. Um, It's very busy. Um, in actual fact, as is as is still the case today, there was there was there was problems on the railway, and the, the train before had been cancelled, so it was even busier than normal. Um, and as it was stopping at Harrow Station at Harrow and Wealdstone Station, an express train that was powering down from Perth to Euston um, didn't stop; it missed all its signals, and it ran straight into the back of the train. Train worse, unfortunately, at exactly the same time as this happened, um, on the the other line. Um, a fast train to Manchester and Liverpool was coming up and it ploughed straight into the wreckage that poured from the other track and, and kind of landed in its way.
1: So we've got the, uh, the the fast train coming up behind train number one. Train number two slams into the back of it, comes off the tracks and uh, onto the opposing track, and then a, a, a third train. And the, 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 uh, the other train was coming at uh, quite a speed, I think, this, this third train that then hit the front of the second train
2: yeah i mean both both the trains that were kind of moving at the time were really kind of powering through i mean express is not just a word they they you, if you ma- if you imagine when you found yourself standing on a station and one of those kind of trains powers through at kind of 60 70 miles an hour and the feeling that you get as, you, as you're told to stand behind the yellow line that was the speed these trains were going at they had, you know you, you've effectively got two accidents rolled into one you've got this this train moving at 70 miles an hour that hits a stationary train in the platform and then as though wreckage of that is on the other line another train running at the same speed hits it as well
1: Um, we we don't have to imagine the carnage because there's plenty of photographic uh, evidence of the aftermath of this incident we've been looking through some of the pictures uh, just before recording and they make for grisly viewing within a moment you can see uh, that it would be remarkable if anybody walked away from this mess it's pretty much impossible to work out how many trains there are from some of the pictures
2: yes i mean because of the speed these trains are traveling at um And because the carriages were made largely of wood at this time, what happens is that the the last three carriages of the the stopped passenger train are effectively concertinaed down into the length of one carriage um, and... The wood kind of explodes outwards and you get this kind of mass of millions of small splinters just flying down the train. Um, You end up with this kind of big hulk of twisted wreckage. Um, Witnesses kind of describe the sound as this kind of roar and scream of twisted metal and it really kind of evokes the kind of the the, the horror there must have been on that day.
1: We'll be talking about one very particular figure who emerged as a result of this disaster. Uh, Before we talk about that though, what's the precedent for a a rail disaster on this uh, sort of scale in London? Um, in London, you don't really have much in the way of that kind of
2: scale. I mean, I mean, ultimately, 112 people die in the in Harrow and Williston rail crash, and that actually makes it the largest civilian rail disaster that the UK has ever seen and will ever see, hopefully. Um, the actual kind of the general predecessor for it is actually in Scotland. Um, that's actually in 1915. You have to go back to 1915 to kind of find something on that similar scale. And that's actually at Quintins Hill. And that's actually uh, over 200 people died there. But that's a military train. That's during the kind of the the First World War and the troop movements. um, And two trains crash into each other. And uh, there's a big fire and lots of people die in that. But I mean, really, Harrow and Wilson is kind of unprecedented in the scale, both at the time and since. We've had nothing since then. The clock stopped at the time of the crash. While the train to Euston train was standing in the station, the Night Express from Perth ran into it, causing fearful damage and chaos. Then the Euston to Manchester Express collided with the wreckage from the first collision. The scene has been described by an eyewitness as being like a battlefield. Certainly no exaggeration, for casualties were on a terrible scale.
1: If there can be said to be uh, a bit of luck on that day, then uh, the luck took the form of military personnel being present.
2: yes I mean one of the the kind of the things with Harrow is and white such a kind of legacy as an accident is that there's actually several incidents of, of pure pure chance to actually come in and, and, and end up saving lives um, firstly uh, at that standing outside the station at the time on his motorbike as a police officer that police officer officer is riding the only motorcycle in the entire area that is equipped with a radio and instantly is able to radio back to base and call for help so the police are there very promptly Ambulances are dispatched. There's there's a big kind of uh, impact in that regard. Similarly, Harrow Town Hall is actually right next to the station. Um, at the very moment that the trains crash, um, Harrow, Harrow's kind of civil defence and crisis committee are holding a meeting to discover whether they should carry on and still exist or whether they should disband. So actually the council workers who are all kind of responsible for rescue and everything also are literally metres away when it happens. Um, and more crucially, um, on the train itself, there are four members of the US Air Force um, and they actually are members of a medical unit of the US Air Force, the four hundred and ninety fourth Medical Group that happens to be stationed at South Rysop at the time. Um, they very quickly kind of realised the scale of the kind of the accident and, 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 and the, 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 the number of victims around and they ask an offer to, to call in help from there medical base uh, from South Ryslip and that's what happens. Um, A team of doctors and one nurse are kind of sent up frantically from the brand new top of the range US Air Force hospital at South Ryslip and they quickly kind of
1: respond and come to the scene yes it should be remembered of course that we're still just a, a few years after the end of the second world war there's still quite a, a militarized sense in the country we're still on rationing and all that stuff and uh, of course a lot of americans still based uh, in the uk yeah and i
2: mean even for for kind of britain i mean it, it, we're kind of used to it now but it's worth remembering that the nhs at this point is only four years old um so ambulances and, and ambulance services and everything else have only really just come into the public sphere and also uh, at this point are only just starting to be kind of coordinated as a as, as a whole and not kind of operated on a hospital-by-hospital hospital basis.
1: We should say something about what the American medical team did once they were on the ground. The, the team was under the command of a, an officer called Lieutenant Colonel Wiedemann.
2: Um, and he was a very senior doctor. He'd seen service in France. He'd, he'd, he'd very much been a, been on, on the battlefront. And his assessment when he arrived with his kind of team of seven doctors and nurse was very much to kind of turn around and say that it resembled more a battlefield than it did an accident and that very much coloured his kind of treatment and how he approached treating patients there. Um, When he arrived, there was a certain amount of organised chaos. There were doctors there that had come from the locality, um, ambulances had turned up, the walking wounded had been thrown into those ambulances and taken to hospital and now there's a certain amount of chaos because as more wounded people were being pulled out with serious injuries, there were no ambulances to take them to hospital all those ambulances has departed and they hadn't come back again yet so you had this kind of element of chaos people using um, uh, there's records that show they were using kind of removal vans to get people to hospital and everything else and Wiedemann kind of looked at this and effectively started to take a certain amount of charge um, the, the big thing that Wiedemann does and his team do is they, they actually set up a, a, a combat aid station on, on platform 5 and 6 at Harrow and Wheelstone station and they start triaging patients as they come out they kind of do that thing that, that t- today we're kind of familiar with from kind of series like MASH from kind of even you know even things like you know you watch Grey's Anatomy or something like that you see them do it as people come into the hospital in these accidents you work out who are the most badly wounded you treat them on the scene and then you take them to hospital but in 1952 this, this, this was virtually unknown it had been used in combat for two world wars by now but in a civilian setting it didn't happen and Wiedemann's team do that at Harrow they turn around and they they set up their medical station they start triaging patients they start treating the really seriously wounded on the platform before they get taken to hospital
1: well, we are indebted to John Hodson, who first brought this story to the attention of Londonist Out Loud, and he did so by mentioning the figure who now makes her presence felt on the scene. So thank you, John, for alerting us to Abby Sweetwine and, and her role in proceedings. Who was it, Abby Sweetwine?
2: Well, as I, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning, when, when the, the American medical team responded, there were seven doctors in that ambulance that came down, and there was one nurse. Abby Sweetwine was the one nurse. She He was a nursing lieutenant in the 494th. And whilst the doctors were treating people, it fell to Abby to kind of really manage the kind of the, the, the chaos and, and, and the kind of the, the wounded that were coming in into their aid station on the platform. She was responsible for, for doing the triage on these patients, for, for seeing who needed checking. She used a, a tube of lipstick she happened to have on her to mark who'd been given morphine, who'd been treated, all this information that would later save lives in the hospital. And generally acting as a kind of a figurehead of kind of calm and, and, and safety in, in, in the chaos. She, she distributed tea and cigarettes, you know, to, 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 to wounded and shocked passengers. And she became such kind of icon of this that she became known as the, the Angel of Platform Six. It was a nickname that the Daily Mirror later gave her. Um, and she really kind of personally made a huge difference at that time.
1: Now, of course, the one detail that hasn't emerged in the story so far is that of Abbey Sweetwines. Ethnicity. Yes, I mean,
2: this is one of the things that really marks out Harrow as a landmark is that uh, Abby Sweetwine is African American. She is possibly the only African American serving in the UK in the medical corps at the time, and by pure chance, she is the person who who kind of responds as a nurse with with Wiedemann's team. And at the time, I mean, it's it's really kind of important to remember the context here. You know, we're only a couple of years after the kind of the arrival of the Windrush in the UK. A, on a cultural level, the kind of, there's not a huge kind of presence of, of, of kind of Caribbean and, 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 and kind of certainly even amongst the American troops of Afro-American troops in the UK. So she really kind of becomes a figure early on. She does a job, she does her job very well. And it changes minds you can you can see that it kind of starts to to change minds on a on a very local level um often kind of things of 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 issues of race are often come down to kind of unfamiliarity more than they do any kind of level of of kind of dislike and for a lot of people that day kind of abby's abby's kind of just calm and collected behavior and doing her job it's clear it changes a lot of minds
1: can, uh, I don't know if this is possible without documents in front of us standing as we are uh, by a chilly railway line, but are you able to recall any of the details of people's responses uh, to her? Yeah, I mean, you kind of... It's quite hard kind of looking
2: back in the past, as as remote as we are from this event now, that a lot of the people kind of who are involved are obviously, you know, long deceased. But if you if you dig back through the kind of the local papers at the time, you dig back through your kind, of your, your, your kind of your local gazettes and chronicles and things like that, you really start to get build up a picture, and that picture shows that, you know, you, you see Abby being given the, the, the kind of the keys to, to Croxley Green Village and things like that, and you, and you, you know that those are things that would not really have they're not areas that would have encountered a lot of kind of diversity or anything like that and it must have been a huge thing for those areas it must have been a very big thing to kind of to to, to start just just put some doubt in people's minds as to as, as to the way they were they were treating people or the way the way the world was working
1: yeah, it's very interesting because this of course was pre the, the 60s civil rights movement in the u.s and so forth so this really is uh, very very early on in in the uh, the, the sort of cultural racial Melting together of, uh, of of London. I don't I don't know whether we've achieved that melting together <laughs> even now. Well, I think I think that's the thing. I mean, I, I think she's she's almost a
2: kind of forgotten early early hero of that kind of thing. Certainly to me, because I think. I think we kind of tend to, to focus on, on the big memories of things like, you know, in the 60s, on our Martin Luther Kings, on the big movements, and they were undoubtedly important. But so often, and it's, it's the small acts, it's the, it's the small people just doing things that, that, that must have been hard for them to do on a regular basis. I mean, it, Abby Sweetwine was African-American and she was a woman. And and both of those things at that time in her job must have been incredibly hard to to, 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 to deal with and, and, and yet she kind of she leaves this kind of huge legacy, um, in
1: you know, that that is forgotten today but is important. Well that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, she's certainly left uh, a legacy in the fabric of our society, there's no doubt about that. What about direct commemoration of Abbey Sweetwine? I mean there's there's
2: not a huge amount out there. I mean rail disasters are always a funny thing. Um, they they tend to live on in the kind of the, the cultural memory of a generation and, and sometimes beyond but the railways themselves are never particularly good at commemorating disasters they investigate them they learn from them but what they're no one really wants to kind of to build big big landmarks of these things. If you find yourself in in Harrow today, outside Harrow and Wilson Station, there's a plaque that commemorates kind of the events of that day. Um, and last year was the 60th anniversary, and Harrow Council put on quite a lot of kind of events to to commemorate it. Um, and then at that event, we, there was quite a lot of mention of of, of, of Abbey Sweetwine One and work, and, and I was involved with that, and, and we, we almost we tried to find kind of some of her descendants to come down, but unfortunately, it, was, it proved impossible. Abbey died in. 2009. Uh, Oh, as recently as that? Yeah, she she lived to I think about 85 in the end Um, She stayed in the Army, well in the Air Force rather, nursing, uh, up until I think 1969 Um, She eventually attained the rank of of major Um, Unfortunately, Abby herself fell victim to a certain extent to still to the prejudices of the time and and ultimately left nursing in, in, in the US Air Force at that point because she found she couldn't get higher Um, major was about as far as she could get uh, at that time but today um, I believe kind of her niece has ended up going into nursing as well so that there's a kind of there's a familial kind of continuation of the thing at at the time of her death one of her local papers over in America ran a kind of small obituary and uh, in and you can see it, you can find that online and one of the, the kind of the comments in there that her niece leaves is that Abby told her that the important thing about nursing is to remember that you're doing it because of the feeling of how you feel inside and to make a difference not to be remembered so i think to a certain extent i think abby would be quite happy with not having a
1: large commemoration of some kind i think that you may well be the authority on this subject the harrow and wheelstone crash and the uh, personages who were involved in it how has that come about um there's, there's a kind of there's an
2: old historian joke which is slightly morbid but is that is that you you eventually become an expert on something when everyone else who is better than you passes away um and sadly that's 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 almost certainly the case with harrow um a lot of the kind of the research and everything into the into the disaster happened in kind of the 60s and 70s um and really the, it, it's been kind of forgotten as i say in a modern sense so it wasn't really until kind of i started looking into it um and others since that it's really kind of come to the fore again so yes i mean uh, uh, sadly, I suspect uh, at the moment, at least, I'm, I'm kind of the the, the voice on the, on the disaster, which is which is uh, an, a both a an, uh, blessing and a curse as a historian.
1: Thinking of how some of the other rail disasters, in particular, are remembered around town, uh, we think, of course, of the clock in King's Cross Station. And it's true what you, where you mentioned that uh, train companies are perhaps a little bit reluctant to uh, remember those things publicly. It's true. Whenever you walk past that clock, there is a a little beat in your heart there that uh, that, that is certainly unwelcome and you think what happened on that spot and that, God knows that's been an unlucky station in many ways but uh, a much bigger commemoration exists in the east end the Bethnal Green Tube Disaster Memorial uh, quite an imposing um brutalist sort of upside down staircase what what do you think has made that disaster remembered over some of the others that have taken place for example labbrook grove or clapham junction or those sorts of things
2: i think often memory of these kind of events and commemoration often comes down to, to to kind of two things timing is important um bethnal green Tube disaster obviously happened during Second World War, so it's, it's tied in with that story as much as anything else. It's 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 part of the kind of the London, the London Blitz and kind of the later mini Blitz, the small Blitz. Uh, it's it's tied in with those events. Um, similarly, I think often it comes down to to really kind of generational and and, and 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 geographical memory. And Bethnal Green has quite a strong kind of geographical and cultural memory. Um, it was noticeable at the kind of the the, the Harrow commemoration events in, in last year that there are very few survivors left alive now and so to a certain extent because harrow happens in this in this post-war world in this transition where we're moving from kind of wartime still very much as you operating in wartime mode we're moving from that into kind of the modern era with television with everything else harrow is actually the first rail accident ever covered by a tv crew or rather a film crew at the time and there is a uh, I think it's a Pathé news crew, who are on their way, I believe, to Royal Ascot and are diverted there to kind of film the aftermath. Um, later on, we remember these events later on because they're televised, because we have more photos. Harrow is in that kind of that scary gap between wartime memory and future kind of modern TV and, 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 and kind of newspaper coverage.
1: And I suppose also the uh, the inclination must have been to put to put it clumsily to put sad stuff behind us as a, as a country and move on you know we, we were very much at that point coming out of the the darkness that had engulfed us in uh, world war Two. so I'm, I'm imagining that perhaps uh, a focus on optimism and uh, not dwelling on that sort of stuff might have been prevalent
2: yes i mean there's still a kind of a certain amount of kind of keep calm and carry on as this kind of overarching ethos of, of, of how you should should live your life but i mean that still prevails i mean five years later you have a similar rail accident at lewisham and actually where, where harrow has all the luck lewisham has none of it it's a very similar event it's a very similar accident but it's it's further out there's 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 no kind of response from a similar medical team at that stage so so people die and 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 people kind of and people are lost who who at harrow weren't lost um but what's interesting post lewisham is is there are certain survivors' accounts who left accounts of, of their treatment afterwards. And there are the walking wounded that walk away from Lewisham. There, I, I was reading a personal account by, by a man who wasn't wounded at lewisham um but helped you know helped people out and remove bodies the police take his name after the accident and they say okay here's here's a ticket to get you home we'll give you a ring if we need you there's no there's this kind of later culture that we build up of of, of really writing these things down and kind of and um, you know helping survivors of these events that's not prevalent yet and it's still not there at lewisham five years later so it's certainly not there at arrow
1: when an entire city's had the you know what bombed out of it just a few years earlier though uh, I should think everybody would be entitled to uh, counselling and trauma therapy and to say that they were suffering PTSD as well they they may have been so yes uh, you, you begin to understand why keep, keeping calm and carrying on is such a pragmatic approach oh absolutely and I think I
2: think that is very much the case at Harrow is it is it, is, it does still form firmly within this kind of this wartime ethos mode um, and that's actually to a certain extent ends up being to its detriment. Um, One of the things that that we struggled with last year for the 60th was coming up with a complete and definitive list of everyone who died Um, because the records aren't that great because we're still in a period where there's an expectation of disasters
1: and death um, and and that causes us issues. We should finish up. We should touch uh, briefly finally on the other repercussions of the Harrow and Wheelstone rail crash not only in terms of how transport or how how rail traffic is handled but also uh, how patients are handled more widely
2: yeah I mean in rail terms Harrow's quite a big event because um one of the things that, that we kind of take for granted today is that all our kind of rail signalling has something called kind of automatic warning systems built in. These are things that if a driver goes past a signal, they they, they either alert or these days actually stop the train. Um, back at this time, that's not really prevalent everywhere, um, and. The railway companies are, at the time were very reluctant to bring that kind of automatic warning systems in, um, mainly because it was expensive and also there was a kind of there was a cultural belief amongst the railway companies that if you had good staff and they were doing their jobs you didn 't need these systems um, up until Harrow, every kind of big railway disaster had always been able to be blamed on someone, but the simple fact was that that, that what happened at harrow you had very experienced drivers. You had very experienced signalmen, and no fault could be found in any of their actions. It just seemed to be one of those things that just happens, and that really kind of blew out of the water the argument that that you know that, that things like automatic warning systems were a luxury, and that started the process slowly, but it started the process of us of us transitioning the railways in this country to, to bring in automatic warning systems wherever they were needed. On the medical side of things, Harrow also has a, a huge legacy for for the NHS um, and particularly for the ambulance. Service, um, one of the things that the kind of the the activities carried out by that American medical team on that day really highlight to kind of the the other doctors' presence to the, to, the, to the NHS staff as watching that really the kind of the traditional approach of just throwing people into an ambulance and getting them to a hospital as fast as possible wasn't really the correct way. I mean, the actions of the American medical team, they reckon, saved about another 20 lives just by, by being there and treating people on the platforms. And so that started, again, the transition in the NHS and in the ambulance service to realising that, that what you need in, in those situations is you need a combat medic on every vehicle. Harrow um, and Wilson effectively marked the birth of the paramedic as a job. That starts really
1: with Harrow. This feels like the perfect opportunity to give a plug to London's Air Ambulance, which I I never tire of supporting. Just in case you don't know, it's paid for entirely by voluntary donations, a little bit of corporate sponsorship, corporate donations, but it it also depends on fundraising. So it's one of those things we can't take for granted. And when I was talking to the guys at, at London's Air Ambulance, they mentioned a similar stroke of magnificent luck on the, the day of the 7-7 bombings because uh, as you, you will know London's Air Ambulance carries two personnel on board at all times, a doctor and a, a paramedic who are able to carry out very advanced forms of surgery on the roadside and it's exactly that idea that, that seems to have come from Haram Wheelstone, the idea that you, you bring the medical care to the patient and, and um, sort them out there and then that golden hour idea and it just so happens that on, on 7-7 there was a meeting of all of the paramedics and all of the trained doctors and they were all in the, the Royal London Hospital at exactly the moment when the bombs went off and uh, you can only imagine how many lives were saved because of that stroke of luck
2: oh absolutely and I think I think this is this is very much the kind of the the heritage of harrow and something that the ambulance services keep going today is is this is this strong and, and rightful belief that that you, you have to you, you know you don't need to be there doing open heart surgery but that golden hour is important and it's not necessarily literally an hour um it, it's just that that sometimes you do need to to uh, I think the phrase is stay and play not scoop and shoot you know you do need to do that kind of thing
1: thank you Gareth Edwards, for for being here to to talk about this and to uh, you know ho- ho- perhaps lodge a sweet wine in the, uh, the the consciousness and the memory of uh, the, the the current generation. We should say before we go a word or two about London reconnections and the sort of stuff you've been involved with. I, I know you are on the first steam train commemorating 150 years of the Tube earlier this year.
2: Yeah, I mean that's one of the the kind of the pleasures and the luxuries uh, is is the ability to kind of uh, wrangle your way onto steam trains at one o'clock in the morning uh, and that kind of stuff. Is it really is early as that. Yeah. I i mean, i was lucky enough to be on, on 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 what was kind of literally the first the first run the kind of the final test that was uh staffed with kind of various people who'd helped out and helped restore the carriages and everything else um so i think there was there was me all those people and, uh, and the bbc film crew, crew um and uh yeah it was a it was an amazing experience what was that like with, with being surrounded by smoke in the tunnels um it was very strange i mean the the big the big difference was was the sound you, you, you don't realize kind of how used to the sound of a regular regular tube train and a and regular station operation you become and suddenly hearing that kind of that chuffing noise that we associate with steam trains kind of uh, kind of as you're sitting on one going through the stations it, there's a certain kind of does not computeness about it and yeah when you kind of the station the station lights and the tunnel lights kind of shrouded in, in smoke gives them a very kind of uh, an almost kind of Sherlock Holmesian feel. And uh, what about later on in the year what's coming up? Um, there's plenty more talks and there's a very good poster exhibition just opening at London transport Museum which is which is well worth attending and there will also be further steam runs in May for those who kind of didn't manage to get on the first time round keep an eye on the kind of the London transport Museum website um, and all that kind of thing it's probably also worth mentioning that of course uh, the success of the kind of the 150th anniversary tube celebrations has kind of spawned some new ideas about how we do these things going forward and I know that that kind of one of the things that that there's there's various hope now that will happen next year because obviously next year will be 1914 and it will be the anniversary of the start of the first world war is to hopefully do something similar with some of the buses that served on the on the kind of the, the western front um that's something they're in very very early stages with and uh i probably shouldn't be telling you but i think it's uh, it's worth sharing well, thank you for sharing
1: and uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge uh, as regards uh, Harrow and Wildstone and uh, just finally what, what's your website address so people can check out more of this sort of thing yeah I mean if you
2: if you just google londonreconnections.com we'll, uh, we'll show up as, as, as the top link and come over I mean as I said we we cover transport news but also the, the history and things everything from Harrow to, to the history of what, why, why those station buildings are red that you see everywhere and, and what's what's special about the, 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 the typeface that you see all the stations.
1: There we go, that's a lovely teaser. Gareth Edwards, thanks very much. No problem at all.
2: Here she
1: and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest Gareth Edwards. Thanks too to Matt Keane, Bernie Barkley, and Dave Haste. The theme of incidental music was by Jack Heard and Rory Anderson, and I'm N. Quentin Wolf. Hey. Girl.
2: You the smell of my shout, startle the cries Do these bones will like still till singing in the sunlight Break the heart of anyone
1: Pray and please for this palace of the open sea